0: tuned to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. That large wildfire burning on Hawaii Island is 80 percent contained. The Leilani Fire, as it's being referred to by the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources, has already burned tens of thousands of acres in and around the U.S. military's Pohakalaua training area on the leeward side of the island. It's burning in the same region as last year's record-setting wildfire that burned 70 square miles, destroyed several homes, and threatened thousands more. The Conversation's Russell Subiano talked with Stephen uh, Bergfield, the uh, Hawaii Island Branch Manager of the Division of Forestry and Wildlife, to get an update on the current blaze this morning.
1: The overall size of the fire currently 16,800 acres. We have it 80% contained. Uh, We're hoping for 90% containment by the end of today. We're still working with Puakaloa training area under a unified command with Chief Hopkins and myself. And we have 41 people on the fire presently between us and PTA.
2: Has the fire been fought primarily by federal and state firefighters?
1: Yeah, initially, during the initial attack, the Hawaii County Fire Department was uh, heavily involved, and then um, maybe by Friday, they had reduced their forces because most all the work was interior.
2: What were the primary techniques you guys were using to fight the fire? Was it a lot of groundwork? Was there air support?
1: We had air support from the county. They had two of their helicopters here. The military also had uh, their helicopters dropping water, but... These types of fires are the, really the only way that you're going to slow them down and put them out is with uh, bulldozers. So we have a lot of contract. We had a lot of contract bulldozers from the local community that we hired to assist making fire breaks.
2: And I, I remember last year's wildfire that burned 40,000 plus acres. Was wind a factor with this fire as it was last year?
1: Yeah, definitely. We were under a red flag warning when this fire broke out of uh, Puakaloa, so it was pushing upwards of 40-mile-an-hour winds out of Puakaloa, and that's what drove it over their western fire break into the Wanahulu game management area.
2: Any homes or structures or wildlife at risk?
1: Um, There's no homes currently threatened. I mean, the closest community is Puhulani subdivision, and they were obviously concerned when the fire was burning out of control. Wildlife. It's a hunting area, so there's a lot of sheep up in the area, as well as native birds and other uh, non-native birds up in the forest.
2: I know there was some concern that the fire was headed toward a dry land forest that contained ohia. What's the status of that front of the fire?
1: Well, I don't know how many acres of that forest was impacted. Some of it was, and we haven't mapped exactly how many acres of that forest was, was damaged, and... Potentially lost, but we were able to save a good portion of it to the south of the fire
2: Some of the other media outlets and some rumors circulating around social media Indicates that the fire started in Pohokoloa training area. Is there any way to to confirm that?
1: Uh, My understanding is it started in Pohokoloa training area the exact cause I'm not sure that's a question for the Pohokoloa training area, but on Wednesday evening it got into the Puanahulu game management area.
2: Federal firefighters are claiming that a backburn they were ordered to do was outside of the plan to control the blaze and actually cause the fire to grow even larger. Does the state know if those claims are true? Uh, That's a question for Puakolo. I don't have information on that. There's some concern also in the past that the island could avert wildfires this large with controlled burns. Is that something that DLNR Mm -hmm. is actively looking into or discussing?
1: Controlled burns, are, we have done some in the past, but it's always a, a question of do the risk, outweigh the benefit.
2: What are the, the benefits of controlled burns? Does it help limit the areas where wildfires can have large impact?
1: Well, one of the areas, for example, that we were do, we were doing controlled burns was between Highway 190 along the Malka side of the highway and our upper break just to reduce ignitions from along the highway. So... We did that for a while, but it takes a lot of money and resources to do that. And then you always have the risk of, of the fire escaping. So sometimes we prefer to do fuels management with uh, cattle or sheep or goats or things like that as well.
2: Yeah, I know how quickly fire can spread down there. I grew up in Waimea and I used to go to Hapuna all the time. And one day I saw somebody flick a cigarette out of their car into the peatly grass and it just, I mean, it lit up in seconds. And uh, yeah. I imagine that any kind of spark, whether it's cigarette or, you know, lightning or there's some kind of ignition from a car or something could could easily set off. That Waikoloa, Puakoloa, Daniel Kanoi stretch of, of dry land right there, it, it seems pretty susceptible pretty easily.
1: Yeah, I mean, right now it's areas are pretty dry. So, it and even if we do get rain, it doesn't take long for the, the grass to dry out and yeah. be... Uh, Available for another fire.
2: You know, last year's wildfire on the Big Island was a huge record-setting fire for the Big Island. What did the state learn from that experience that helped fight this fire?
1: I think the most important uh, lesson from that would be that you know, because we are on an island, we have to work well together with all the other agencies and put our resources together to to put out fires like this. We had an incident management team that's made up of Spokalua training area personnel, Hawaii County Fire Department, and forestry and wildlife that were helping to manage that fire. So, and we also have uh, the National Park Service that has a lot of experience that can help us as well.
2: It sounds like it kind of brought the firefighting agencies more on the same page and, and in a place where they knew how to cooperate and, and work together as a team better.
1: Yeah, yeah. there's only so many resources on the island, and uh, it takes a long time to get additional resources here, even if it's from Maui or Oahu. So we have to all be able to work together, and I think we do a pretty good job.
2: I know that DLNR is hosting two virtual meetings today for people living and working in East Honolulu that have wildfire concerns. The meeting is also an opportunity to develop a community wildfire protection plan for folks on the Big Island that, that may live near today's fire or near last year's fire, is is this the kind of situation that could be addressed by a community wildfire protection plan for those communities on the Big Island as well?
1: Yeah, I think like Ulani, which was threatened, they have a wildland urban interface plan that um, they've worked with, with the state as well as the Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization. Mm-hmm. And Waikoloa also has that type of wildland urban interface plan for their community. So if people can, uh, if they recognize that wildland fire is a threat to their community, then they need to make their homes fire safe and put as much defense, defensible space around them as possible, as well as uh, contact the state or Hawaii Wildlife Management Organization to see what they can do, do a site visit, come out and see what recommendations might be given to them to reduce the impact to their community.
2: Right on. Thanks so much for your time, Steve. I, I really appreciate the information and the insight.
1: Oh, you're welcome. That was Steve
0: Bergfeld with the State Division of Forestry and Wildlife talking with HBR's Russell Subbiono. They were discussing the status of the Leilani wildfire on Hawaii Island. And here on Oahu, the state DLNR will be holding two virtual meetings this afternoon for people living in East Honolulu who have wild, wildfire concerns and to begin the development of a community wildfire protection plan. Probably a good idea. The first starts at noon. The second begins at 5.30 p.m. We'll have links to those meetings on the converse- conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. This is the conversation on statewide, member supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz.
3: Onihoa, Olehua, Onihao, Okawa, Oa,
0: O Molokai, O Lana, O Mau, O Hawaii. With temperatures high in the 90s and variable winds up to 15 miles per hour, we're slathering on the sunscreen and looking for a cool spot in the shade for today's Backyard Quiz. It's typical summer weather here, which might feed the common misconception that Hawaii does not have seasons, and it's always hot here. But did you know that our state has about seven climactic subregions? They're primarily defined by the physical Uh, geographic features of each island, and uh, whether they're on the windward or leeward side. For example, the windward lowlands uh, lies more or less perpendicular to the prevailing flow of the trade winds and is moderately rainy with frequent trade wind showers. On the other hand, the leeward lowlands have slightly higher daytime temperatures and slightly lower nighttime temperatures. So, for today's quiz, we want to know about the two seasons that have been recognized by ancient Hawaiians. Can you tell us the Hawaiian name of these seasons and their meaning? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. And the first one to get it right gets a reusable HPR tote bag.
4: Where the trade wins play,
5: where you lose the Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. Nareet Hawaii Sri Lanka used to be a country on the rise now even families with an economic
4: cushion are struggling with grocery prices through the roof no gas for cooking and no fuel
2: for the car current situation is horrible even we are feeling it what about the others who can't even afford what we can afford
4: a nation tries to make ends meet our story from Sri Lanka on the world
5: beginning this afternoon at one oh,
0: music was
4: everywhere flowers were
0: might want to prepare yourself. If you're on the road here on Oahu next week, expect delays as 50,000 more motorists hit the road. The University of Hawaii faculty and students return in person for the first time since the start of the pandemic. And joining us this morning live in our studio is John Nowuchi, Deputy Transportation Services Director for the city. Good morning. Aloha. I understand you took the bus over here.
6: (laughs) Yep, as I always do. (laughs) And
0: so how was the ride this morning?
6: I think the one thing I want to say, you were talking about how hot it is outside. Mm-hmm. Bus is always a cool place to sit.
0: Uh, there you go. <laughs> well, you're here because we've got to get everybody prepared for the back to the school jam next week and the beat the school jam. We, w- we want people to make this as easy of a transition as possible. And uh, the city's kicking off this free bus uh, week, this campaign.
6: Yeah, um, starting Monday, August 22nd. Um, the bus will be free with holocard so just present your holocard tap the reader and you should be good to go um, right now until August 26th, Friday August 26 all holocards are free so if you want a plain regular adult holocard you can go to any of our um, merchants including 7-eleven ABC stores times supermarkets foodland um, and our satellite city halls to get uh, a free adult holocard The only caveat is, is if you want a reduced fare, uh, holo card, such as if you have a senior, uh, kupuna, I'm sorry, uh, student or disabled holo card, you do have to go to either the the bus pass office at Kalihi Transit Center, or any of the satellite city halls, excepting the Ala Moana location.
0: Okay, so don't go to Ala Moana; they won't take your holo card. Um, you can get a regular, right, um, a regular one, but not the special one.
6: And um, at the city, at the satellite city halls, you will need an Aloha Q appointment.
0: Ah, okay, good to know. And so now I picked up one of those holo cards, I think, at one of the rail uh, open houses, but you have to register it, don't you? I haven't done that.
6: Actually, you don't have to register okay. it. However, you know, we want to encourage everybody to create an account and register their holo card. And here's why. Um, back in the day, not too long ago, when we had paper passes, you bought one of your paper passes, and if you lost it, it was really too bad. Very sorry, but we couldn't do anything about it. Now, if you um, put a monthly pass on a Holo card, or if you put a money monetary value in your stored value on the Holo card, and you lose the card, you can go online at www.holocard.net, or just call 768 Holo, and actually let them know that the card is lost, and then they'll stop all transactions on that. You can get a new Holo card and just transfer your pass or your your money onto the new card that you get
0: ah okay so it's a good uh safeguarding if you if you register that card
6: yeah know. and also you know with holocard it comes a lot of other benefits um holocard is the only way that you can get free transfers for two and a half hours after you tap on board your first bus so say you get on a bus you tap all your rides for the next two and a half hours um are free so you can transfer and move freely within anywhere in our transit network for two and a half hours um, Holo is also the only way that you can get a day pass. So our adult fare right now is $3. Um, if you keep riding throughout the day, you won't pay more than the day pass amount which is $7.50 for the course of the day. After you achieve that seven fifty dollars spending, then your rides are free for the rest of the day. Now that capping feature is one of the things I think we're the most proud about with our Holo card. We were um, quite innovative in the transit field to implement this this program of capping, so right now a monthly adult pass is eighty dollars, and before when we had paper passes, everybody used to have to outlay that eighty dollars for the pass at the beginning or before the beginning of the month, you know, to in order to have the pass for the whole month. Now Holo allows you to just earn accumulate value, and once you hit that eighty dollar threshold, we will not charge you for the rest of the month. So to us, it's a huge equity move, and you know we understand, you know, pe- times are tough right now it people have a lot of outlay a lot of money to spend at the beginning of the month whether it be their mortgage rent you know just bills to pay utilities and other things that we love being able to let them earn a pass for the same amount you know spending throughout the month
0: right no that that is a plus plus. and okay now you do want to get some info out to the, the, the bus users because you've modified the routes um, you're adding some back in, you've got all kinds of express uh, routes to uh, to help the students who are trying to get from point A to point B, um, you know, as, as everybody heads back to the classroom.
6: Yeah, one of the reasons we really wanted to do uh, a fair-free week, and this is the first time we've actually done a fair-free week to attract riders, we want to welcome riders to our system, and also as importantly, we want to um, attract riders back to the system. You know, the pandemic had a Had a pretty profound effect everywhere not just you know in transportation um starting august 22nd we will be restoring 37 trips to our peak hour expresses that reached really to all corners of of this island of oahu and so we're adding more trips in the in the am and pm peak during the crunch times and all those trips will connect downtown to a new route we have called the u1 campus connector and that was implemented really to um, make the trip for students much easier. And actually, if you make a trip easier for a student, you actually do make a trip easier for parents. So if you have parents who are returning to work in downtown, they can actually bring their kids with them in the car, maybe take advantage of zipper lanes and HOV lanes and other things, and you know they can go to work and, and their kids can actually board the bus in downtown. Take a ride on this U1 Campus Connector, which is designed really to express students across town, so from downtown in the morning, It'll head on a path, Mauka of the H1 Freeway, hitting all a lot of the independent schools in Makiki. UH Manoa dip down to Mo'ili'ili to service Iolani Kaimuki High School and all the, the independent schools along YLI Avenue um, through Kaimuki and ending at KCC. And in the afternoon, it'll do the same thing in reverse. So it'll collect everybody there and take them to downtown. Maybe they can reunite with their their parents. Or, you know get another ride home or they can take a peak hour express in the afternoon
0: okay i recall a time when i took the pearl city express bus into town to all shopping center and it was just it was great you just get on get off
6: yeah and you know one of the things i think people don't think about nowadays is um you know when i used to ride the bus a longer distance when i was a kid we didn't have phones this is a great time to kind of veg out you know you can look at email you can do socials you can listen to music you can watch videos that's a huge luxury to have, you know, a s- certain amount of time every morning and every afternoon to kind of either like, to wind up or to wind down.
0: Yeah, double check your homework before you turn it in. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I just saw the the data book issue some stats, and one of them that caught my eye was how the uh, ridership of the bus decreased. We had sixty two point five million in two thousand and nineteen. It went down to uh, forty eight. Point five, and it's and then it sunk down to 27 million passengers. So we've really got to get that back up.
6: Yeah, and you know, despite us running about 90% of the service we were pre-pandemic, we understand that the, there's a shift in demographics and where people are going. And, you know, just the idea of telework, we're actually very happy to support telework. That means less people on the roads during the peak hours. But that does have an effect, a reverberating effect on our ridership.
0: Okay, so uh, folks have that opportunity next week to jump on the bus for free. Check it out, try it out, see if it works for your family, uh, and uh, and get a hold of those holo cards.
6: Yeah, go get the holo holo card now. Um, we've suspended the fee on the holo card. The holo card is also free right now. Normally, it's two bucks. We think it's a good time for everyone, every Oahu resident, whether you think you're going to ride the bus or not, to get a holo card in your wallet or purse because holo will be your gateway to mobility in the city.
0: Okay, and we've got about a minute left. Anything else you think would be important to stress uh, to our riders?
6: Um, if you need any more information, especially if you haven't been on the bus in a while, you know, contact us at 808-848-5555. We'll be happy to help you plan a trip. You can also do that online at www.thebus.org. For more Holo information, you can go to www.holocard.net.
0: Okay, and uh, you can check out those express routes to see if that's going to work. Uh, For your your family ahead of time if you're a little nervous? (laughs) Yes,
6: yes. And, you know, main thing, welcome aboard the bus, welcome back to the bus.
0: Okay. All right. I'm looking forward to hearing uh, those recorded messages. (laughs) That's one of my favorite things on the bus. But thank you so much, John. Hello. Appreciate you being here. We have been uh, hearing from the city's uh, deputy of transportation services, John Nouchi. So next week, take advantage of the free bus service and the new express routes and beat the back-to-school jam.
5: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event Palette on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org.
6: Do you get enough exercise answer? Probably no, because a new study finds that the standard recommendation of two and a half hours a week of exercise may not be enough. You might need twice as much exercise to live a long, healthy life. But who's got the time? I like to tell people that even if you're cleaning your house, if you do it really fast, it could be on the vigorous end. That's on the next On Point.
5: Beginning this afternoon at two following the world.
0: our reality check today, Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about a probe into possible wrongdoing at the airport base yard. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about a story by Christina Jedra. Good morning, Chad.
4: Good morning, Catherine.
0: So we're talking theft and fraud.
4: I tell you, my eyes looked at this headline and went, oh, God, another corruption story, (laughs) potential corruption story involving government in in Hawaii, in Honolulu. It is the number one story on our site right now. uh, No surprise. Uh, It involves several Department of Transportation uh, employees. This is the state DOT uh, who were arrested. Uh, Some have since left the DOT. Some are still there. This has been over the last 16 months. The Attorney General's office is in fact investigating theft and procurement fraud. No charges have been filed yet, but we can tell you that among those five or six employees, they include Roy Sakata, the district manager overseeing. Uh, the airport, uh, Daniel K. Inouye International, uh, Kalailoa, There's a field out there, and, and Dillingham Field up there on the North Shore. The DOT does confirm that this is a criminal and uh, administrative investigation that it's underway, and, and they confirm as well some of the departures uh, tied to uh, to this investigation.
0: Right. So uh, we're waiting for the shoe to drop. Will there be indictments? <laughs> uh, what's going to happen? But you know. The airports have always been one of those – well, the the Department of Transportation, I should say, has always been one of those um, departments. The haves, right, versus the have-nots. I mean, they get a lot of money funneled their way.
4: They do. And and what Christina clarifies in the story is that a lot of it, it comes from fees, landing fees, gate fees, whatever the case may be, not necessarily tax dollars. So in that sense, it's guaranteed money, right? you got to keep mm-hmm. the planes flying. Uh, but as the DOT is acknowledging that this is still public money, that it still needs uh, to be protected, the DOT says it is cooperating fully uh, with um, authorities. The AG, by the way, not surprisingly, uh, declined to comment on this, but uh, did in fact confirm. I should say one other thing about the DOT. That they say that they've actually already taken steps to address this matter, to respond to the, the wrongdoing Apparently, there's an interim management team uh, that's put in put in place. Uh, Christina tried to reach uh, s- some of these employees, who, by the way, are named um, in her story. They are technicians, they're mechanics, maintenance supervisors, uh, but nobody is commenting on this just yet.
0: Yeah, because I mean, I know over the years they've had issues with um, with theft. You know, when there's mm. always been lots of talk oh, it was an inside job because we're talking like you know, big stuff that's disappearing off the base yard. Uh, so I guess we'll have to see what happens as, probe, uh, as this probe uh, continues. And, and uh... Right.
4: Some of this did get out when this happened. This actually happened back in April of last year, 2021. There was a search warrant uh, for the base yard. Uh, the authorities did seize computers. They, they seized files. They seized other equipment. Uh, it was an early morning raid there at the airport, uh, and uh, apparently the 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 suspicion is of second degree theft. That is a felony, uh, and that involves equipment that's more than valued at more than seven hundred and fifty dollars, which would seem to be the case certainly with computers, and whatnot. But we're we're still uh, not quite figuring out. But I think the key here, the at least the tease, is procurement, right? That has mm-hmm. to do with contracts that are issued to perform certain duties, and. Uh, procurement is something that's often as you, as you well know at the at the core of, of some of the greater crimes that happen because not everybody sees those books right it's it's usually a few people uh, even though there is a process uh, procurement fraud uh, has been known to happen to put it mildly here
0: yeah I mean and, and the 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 thing is that you know you you want to know who's minding the store right, right. Um <laughs> <laughs>
4: <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, that's another thing that's kind of curious. Uh, Christina found out that um, there was actually uh, an, an airport administrator that somehow would have been involved in these areas. The position had been vacant since 2008. That's Unless that's a typo, that's 2008, not 2018. And what's even more curious is uh, the budget, the, the most recently passed budget. Even though I said it's primarily fees, there are tax dollars involved. The Ways and Means Chair, Donovan Dela Cruz, for whatever reason, decided to actually cut positions there at the airport. The senator did not respond to Christina's inquiry. But one wonders if this is somewhat tied uh, to vacancies, to yes. positions that people shouldn't be in charge of. All, of course, is speculation on my part. We will probably find out much more uh, in the days to come. But, but as you point out, this is not the first time the airport has, has landed in trouble.
0: No, and they did have a, a, a longtime administrator there who left. And I remember I kept calling, like, oh, who, who's replacing mm-hmm. this guy? And, and, and they said, well, it's just been kind of vacant. And so, yeah, <laughs> other people are doing the job, but that position has just not been filled. Uh, But we will find out more. But thank you so much, Chad.
4: You're welcome. Thanks, Catherine.
0: That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read uh, Christina uh, Jedra's story online at civilbeat.org. take less. Could that become a traveler's creed? Jerry Agusa is a University of Hawaii professor at the School of Travel Industry Management at the University of Hawaii. Uh, he Agusa just published a paper looking at regenerative tourism on the garden aisle. He held a recent decision by Kauai to find a way to accommodate Turo's rental cars with a, a site Offsite from a lot, off-site from the airport. He believes that we need more of that kind of out-of-the-box thinking to tame over tourism, which has come roaring back, at least domestic travel anyway. Here's Agrusa.
3: We were trying to find out, you know, what the residents of Kauai felt about the amount of tourists coming there and what can we do to improve their sentiment about tourists. And what we looked at is, what is regenerative tourism? Now, regenerative tourism, the definition is that, you know, people come to a place and leave it better than it was prior to their arrival. Unlike sustainable tourism, is where you come to a destination and then you hope for it to stay the same. This is what regenerative tourism is for the tourists to help improve the destination, whether it's the environment, the ocean, the Ina, the the land, or the local population, and help with that. So what we looked at is, what would it take to help improve the resident sentiment of of having tourists? And, And as you mentioned earlier, uh, today, there's been a big pushback in Hawaii because of the amount of tourists that are coming. There. Now, when we started this study, this was right after COVID started to ping down. So we, we collected the data in 2021, and what we asked them, you know, a number of questions. And what we were looking at is what would it be to help what they want from the tourists? What does the residents want from the tourists? And, you know, and one of the things that we found is that uh, there are a number of Entities, uh, hotels, for instance. There's the Cliffs, for instance, in in, in Kauai. and the general manager's there name is uh, Jim Braman and he took initiative in uh, November of 2020 to become the first prop to join with Kauai chapter's Ocean Friendly Visitor Program. And this initiative helps educate the guests on their impact and encourages them to uh, lend a hand. And the simple, you know, one of the simple things that they did was. Uh, at the country air they gave out buckets, and because the majority of the tourists that came in 2020 are from the mainland, U.S. mainland, you have the west coast, which is a three-hour time, period, but the big ones on the east coast is a six-hour time. Period. And with that six hours, you know they wake up at if, you, if they wake up at at noon at New York time, frame. it's actually 6 a.m. So they come down, they take a bucket, and they walk along the beach and pick up plastic. Now, the plastic isn't coming from Kauai, The plastic is coming from the Pacific Ocean. But this is what the tourists were doing to help. And then to take the next option, what they did was they worked with the Surf Rider Foundation, and then they have a once a week, they have a thing called net patrols, which help remove abandoned commercial fishing gear, whether it's nets or big lines from uh, the Kauai shores. And this is in partnership with the Cliffs Hotel. And by doing that, you know, it showed the residents that, hey, look, the tourists are helping out your home, too. That, that really, really took off. And then you have a, a number of other hotels that follow suit. Uh, Timbers up in, in Kauai there, on, um, they closed down that golf course, and they put together an organic farm. You know, and this is a very high-end uh, hotel, and you have uh, some of the visitors go there and, you know, help pick. Vegetables and so on, where they have, uh, you know, back different from the plantation times where it was just a monocrop, where they have many, many kinds of, of uh, fruits and vegetables being grown. And then the tourists love it. And you know what, one of the things that went well, you know, you look at the disaster of 2018, the floods on the North Shore and Honolulu, you know, they were able to shut down the state park. And what did they do? They took They stopped allowing so many people to go when they opened it back up. They lowered it from 2,000 visitors a day to 900, and they put up a shuttle program that alleviated all the traffic going down there. And these are just some of the things that Kauai did uh, very well to get the tourists more engaged. Um, And what what will happen is as these programs start to become more well-known by the residents, I believe that the residents will have a more positive view of tourists. You know, when we had the COVID outbreak and when we had to do the lockdown, right, April and May of 2020, right here in Oahu, we just shut everything down. And, you know, you went from the lowest unemployment, below 3%, to in the whole United States, we had the lowest, Hawaii had the lowest unemployment in any state in the United States, to the highest unemployment in the United States, percentage-wise, in one month. So by that happening, It just – it should have let residents know that, you know, how economically important tourism is. And that's what we're – what we look for in in this study is to see uh, if – what would it take for the residents of Kauai to feel better about tourism and what they expect. And that's what what, what – some of the things that we found. You know, one of the things that I, I when I was doing another study on uh, environmental tourism uh, after COVID, here on Oahu, I met a family. And uh, the first thing they wanted to do, so the mom and the, and the two children, was plant trees on their arrival. And they were doing that to offset the carbon footprint that the airline flight uh, did by coming here by, you know, because the flight is so long you know, the carbon footprint of the air traffic, uh, they wanted to offset that by planting trees. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really, really good. And that shows that it's, re- it's on, um, you know, being environmentally conscious is on people's mind. And what we hope with the regenerative tourism, which is in partnership, I think, you know, we can look at what h 2 Tourism Authority is doing with the Malama Project, sharing with the tourists What's expected, as well as what the residents expect, what expected from residents, and what ex- residents expect from the tourists, and um, I think that, that is, this has been very well received, and I think it needs to just keep being um, a more of a more brought out a little more.
0: Yeah, we need to continue the conversation around the kinds of things yeah. that we can do that are. Out of the box that have never been tried before, but we've got to find fixes for the frustration <laughs> that we're all feeling as we see these numbers come back.
3: Right, and we and we can see there's a number of reasons for the numbers coming back at such a great, you know, pace. You know, I I remember when we first had COVID, and I kept saying that be ready, the tourism's going to come back, and there are a number of folks, economists, on the state saying oh, we won't have tourists back in 2024. And I'm like, no, 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 no. The product is not damaged. We didn't have a flood. We didn't have an earthquake. We didn't have a hurricane. We didn't have a volcano eruption. The product has not been damaged. They will come back. And as we see, because of the of all, safety around the world, uh, not everyone has the availability of the vaccine that we have here. So you have the Olympics. Uh, if you watched the last week, uh, the Chinese Hawaii, Hanan Island, right? They had six people get COVID. They locked the island down. Everybody was locked in the hotel for the next 10 days. So no one in, no one out, no one, no airplanes in, no airplanes out. And, that, you know, Hanan Island, you look at that, just like Waikiki. It has 40,000 hotel rooms. I mean, it's a monster. And they just locked it all down. Boom. And one day, no one in, no one out, nothing. So because we, you know, people now have to take into consideration, not just the cost of travel and where they're going, but they have to look at what are the rules or the laws that are being implemented if someone gets COVID.
0: The rules have been relaxed here in a way and across our country, but there are other countries that have other rules. There are cruise ships that are operating uh, under different agreements. So it really does behoove the traveler to do the research
3: Right, and and, and that's why we're getting so many Americans. I mean, first of all, a lot of Americans have very poor geography knowledge, right? So you tell Europe, and all Europe is one big place. You know, it's it's like I had the opportunity to live and work and go to school in Texas, and Texans think the whole world is Texas. Like when I used to come here in the summers, they would ask me, why are you going to Hawaii? We got beaches in Texas. "Because it's Hawaii. (laughs) They just, they didn't get it. Mm -hmm. They just didn't get it. Now, Americans think Europe, there's a war in Europe, so we can't go there. Now, is the war devastating? Yes. And has yeah. it disrupted most of Europe? Yes. Refugees everywhere. But it, you can go to uh, France or you can go to Spain and you can go to Italy and you can go to Norway. So Americans just avoid that. that. The second thing was we're number one, right? We're number one with the number of COVID, positive COVID, number one of people dying of COVID. So when we first started to travel, they didn't want America. You know, everyone's welcome, but America.
0: Is there anything else that you think we should underscore w- with the research that you folks did? And just the bottom line is, as each island grapples with what to do with their situation?
3: We need to make sure that we try to look at all the stakeholders, right? You know, post-pandemic, post-pandemic we need to make sure that, you know, we look at all the major stakeholders, not just the tourists, but the residents, and then hopefully— that, you know, regenerative tourism can be a catalyst to explore, you know, more of the hidden gems of a destination while leaving it in, leaving the place better than it was before. And, you know, as I said earlier, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's another step compared to sustainable. Sustainable is to maintain. Regenerative is to make, keep it and make it better. And I think that there are folks that are willing, to, you know, to come and pay even to be involved with making it better.
0: That was travel industry management professor Jerry Agrusa talking to us about his research on attitudes by local residents about tourism on the island of Kauai. Earlier in the show, we asked you about the seasons in Hawaii. In ancient times, Hawaiians recognized two distinct seasons, a hotter, drier period and a cooler, wetter period, both lasting about six months. They were called Kau and Ho'o'ilo. Kau was the fruitful season, or Hawaiian summer, which runs from May to October. It's a time when the sun is directly or almost directly overhead with higher temperatures and lighter winds. Rain clouds are typically fewer and far between, except on the windward coast, and surf is at its lowest. Ho'o'ilo, uh Hawaiian winter, runs from November to April. It's the season when the sun is in the south resulting in cooler temperatures and more rainfall as trade winds increase to their stronger winter levels. High surf also comes to the islands as the jet stream drops a bit lower and brings storms with heavy rain to the Pacific. Right now, meteorologists are forecasting light winds with mostly dry conditions. Trade winds expected to return on Thursday. And our winner for today, Cindy from Kula, you got it right. And that's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org.
5: Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Island Community Health Center, a merger of Bay Clinic and West Hawaii Community Health Center, now providing comprehensive health care on Hawaii Island, hicommunityhealthcenter.org
0: on the next Fresh Air. We talk with Adam Schiff about serving on the House Committee investigating January 6th and having led the first impeachment of Donald Trump. We'll also talk about his new memoir, which has just been published in paperback with a new afterword. It's called Midnight in Washington. Join us.
5: Beginning this afternoon at three, following On Point.
0: Democrats in the state have been the dominant party except for 20 years ago when voters opted for the Republican ticket of Linda Lingle and Duke Iona. But the primary this past weekend positioned Democratic Lieutenant Governor Josh Green to be on the edge of claiming the top job as governor and Finance Chair Sylvia Luke as number two on the Democratic Party ticket. We talked to Democratic Party Chair D- Dennis Jung about the election results. Will the recent public corruption scandals motivate voters to go Republican this year? Or will Democrat voters rally together, as the candidates mostly did at the traditional unity breakfast this past weekend? Here's Jung.
7: You could tell from the unity breakfast the, the level of enthusiasm among the, uh, the people in the room. And this is really the, the first time in years people have said that they felt the party was uh, solidly behind the, uh, the slate of candidates that were, were elected by the, the voters. And there was lots of smiling faces and, and cheerful people. And I, I was very warmed by the response that uh, we had at the unity breakfast. You know, I think that people can say that the voter turnout was a little bit low this year. Of course, we, we you know, it's a new process that we um, are, are, are you know, embarking upon, you know, all mail-in ballots and things. But by and large, uh, you, you can see that, uh, that uh, the, the Lieutenant Governor got a tremendous number of votes. You know, his candidacy was well received by the public. You know, he is our, our candidate in the general election. He uh, gave a very, very rousing um, acceptance speech uh, at the um, the modern Honolulu on Saturday night. And uh, the people there were totally ex- ecstatic about his uh, winning the primary. So we have nothing but reason for optimism as far as what we expect moving into the general election.
0: Green did have a commanding lead, you know, from the get-go. Yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, the polls were showing it and... and He held that through the primary. But how do you address the negative campaigning that we saw with the political action committees? Because these were Democratic candidates.
7: I think there was a lot of um, disappointment by individuals. Nobody wants to come out and say anything publicly. Essentially, I think the voters spoke on that issue as well. Negative campaigning didn't seem to go over very well. And the the voters that made their choices for candidates who, who were speaking positive messages...
0: Historically, we have seen some, you know, whisper campaigns, you know, dating back to cease have, tell, you know, when he yeah. ran and Ben Cayetano, you know, had his uh, experience, you know, and, and that didn't end well for his campaign. For mayor?
7: This time, the candidates that spoke positive messages were the pr- ones that prevailed. I don't think that the candidates, any of the candidates, were negative, but the political action committee th- that purported to speak on behalf of these candidates, they certainly shared some negativity, and it, it didn't seem to do well for the candidates that they were trying to support. I think that in a way, that speaks well for the sophistication of Hawaii voters. That we are um, interested in, in, in the messages of candidates because it's the candidates who are going to be um, representing us in, in the government. And so negativity really is not necessarily a factor that we ought to consider in, um, in, in voting for the other candidate. We should rather hear positive messages from, from opposing candidates. And if they have a good message, then maybe you know, voters will turn to them. But otherwise, the voters have spoken that candidates that have positive messages resonate well with them. And so I think that's a wonderful sign. It, it, it's something that um, perhaps makes Hawaii a very special uh, place, and it speaks well for the voters here.
0: Well, we d- we did see during uh, one of the governors' forums that um, a couple of candidates, uh, you know, got into a, a tussle, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, early on. And I think the Republicans tried to use that and didn't want to say negative things about their opponents in the primary. Mm-hmm. We did see Duke Iona basically just praise his opponents. I think that,
7: you know, if I'm the voter and I'm listening to what the Republican candidates are saying, I really do want to know what distinguishes B.J. Penn from from Duke Iona. And if if Duke has a different idea as far as, uh, you know, how to reduce the cost of housing in Hawaii, it would be a good idea to respectfully share the differences in his point of view as opposed to what B.J. Penn thinks. And, And same thing with Heidi that if, if Heidi thinks that she has a better idea than Duke, then it, it's not criticizing the candidate, but simply to respectfully say, well, here's what I think. And, you know, um, what I think is really something that I hope that you voters will take into consideration and vote for me. It's it's a different story than what happened, I, I suppose, on, on the Democratic side where people were, the candidates were getting into issues that were not necessarily policy. But in any event, I would suggest that that speaks to the amount of passion there was in terms of the, the, the candidates for governor you know, this time around in the, in the Democratic primary, that we had three people who truly believed that they were um, the right ones to be the governor, and they, they basically gave their 100 percent awe to trying to persuade the voters that they are the ones that should be governor. My personal feeling is that, you know, in listening to each of the, the candidates for governor from the Democratic side, I think any one of them would have been a fine governor. And so, in a sense, you know, the, the people did have a choice to, this time. They apparently chose Josh Green, and, you know, we're happy with that as well. But basically, as far as Kai or Vicky, I think all three of them were fantastic candidates. They spoke with tremendous passion, and sometimes that passion kind of overspells a little bit. But it's, it, it speaks to how deeply they wanted to be governor and how they felt that they could serve the state
0: you know the republicans are going to try their darnest to get their numbers up you know they fielded a decent number of of uh, races you know i mean what well, what are your thoughts on on the future of the republican party i mean it did come as a surprise when uh the voters elected linda lingle and duke Iona way back when well i i think
7: that you know um competition is very important it's it's um I think it's it's wonderful that there are maybe as many as 64 candidates running in statewide offices from the Republican Party. I think that that means that Democrats will have to take things rather seriously, and it, um, our candidates will have to uh, convince the voters that they are the ones with the better ideas. I certainly think that you know having a large field of Republican candidates is, is a good thing for the people. Choice is always good.
0: There are some who, who say that it may boil down to uh, Republicans' loyalty to Trump and, you know, whether that will become an issue in the general election?
7: I don't know about that. I certainly would hope that that's not the case. I think that the uh, the news that's coming down nationally doesn't speak well for the former president in terms of what's going on and what is likely to come down as far as uh, former President Trump. I certainly would be very, very sad if boy Republicans would be uh, motivated by loyalty to to. Um, the former president. Essentially, I, I've been pointing out that the one-sixth Commission, the January 6th Commission, is very important. And that as, uh, as, as people interested in the political process, we need to be concerned about what, is, what the facts are as far as the, the January 6th insurrection. And the fact that the, the evidence seems to point to the, the White House during former President Trump's tenure is very alarming. And uh, um, I suggest that that is something that we need to, to focus our attention on. And the reason that I've been, I've been making that point is for, just for what we're talking about here. I really hope that Hawai'i Republicans would not make decisions based upon loyalty to the former president. It's certainly a good idea for all voters to consider the, the, the points of views expressed by the, all of the candidates, Democrats and Republicans, and to make informed decisions as to what Each voter thinks is in the best for the state of Hawaii, for the people of Hawaii. And um, the issues are really more important than loyalty to a former president.
0: Some thoughtful words from Dennis Jung, head of the Democratic Party of Hawaii. Tomorrow we plan to hear from the grand old party. Uh, Republican head Lynn Finnegan is expected to join us with her thoughts post-primary election. for us today. Tomorrow, we'll be looking at the uh, rising cost of school supplies as our dollar doesn't go very far anymore and the inflation hits our wallets. Got some feedback about our cakey heading back to school. Share your comments or thoughts about what you heard today by calling our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.